Welcome to The Academic Citizen, a podcast about critical issues in higher education. The podcast is sponsored by ASAWU, the Academic Staff Association of Wits University, based in Johannesburg, South Africa. Our podcast explores a wide variety of issues about university life relevant to staff and students looking at issues in South Africa, Africa and beyond. In each episode, we speak to a guest who has special insight or expertise in a particular subject. And we also bring in student voices linked to that theme. My name is Nosipom Gomezulu. And my name is Mahita Ikani. And, and we're, we're your hosts. So my name is Motadzi Mutsiwile. I am an LB graduate from BITS. I, what's interesting about the, 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 the gender gap is a, a particular move towards uh, uh, recruiting and promoting women lecturers. But the interesting thing is, at least within the law, the law school, and perhaps maybe even uh, the the commerce uh, faculty, there were more white women who were, you know, gaining uh, prominence and rising through the rank. I mean, on a quick, quick study, I can literally just remember only three black women during my five years of, of my degree, in contrast to about eight. Uh, white women who were like, who were my lecturers. There was literally like a handful of black women who were just moving across or moving around and moving around the, the school. So the gender gap is quite wide, uh, and also in terms of how people rise through the ranks. Um, there were more male professors than there were uh, 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 female professors as well, at least in the law school. But I also think even outside of that, I mean, I look back at. Uh, studying, because uh, I, I took a humanities uh, uh, unit during one of my years, and even then, uh, there were more, there seemed to be a more, a bigger presence of white, I mean, of white male uh, lecturers than there were, there was of, uh, you know, black female uh, lecturers. The interesting thing is that on the inverse, uh, as a student, I experienced more black female students enrolling. I don't know what that says about what happens, obviously, post uh, our degrees in terms of how people then find themselves going into places of work, uh, because I then know once I got into work, I then experienced more men actually being at work within the corporate sector of South Africa. Welcome to today's episode of The Academic Citizen. Our guest today is Dr. Asanda Benya, a lecturer at UCT in the Department of Sociology. Using ethnography, her current research looks at the construction of gender subjectivities of women mine workers in the platinum mine in the Northwest Province. Her research interests include gender, labor, social movements, human rights, and social justice in mining communities. Welcome, Asanda. Thank you very much. So just to kick things off, I'd like to find out how did you become interested in issues of gender in your research? Actually, I got interested while doing a research in the platinum belt and subcontracted mine workers. And some of the mine workers, I think one, they thought, well, here's a woman doing research on subcontracted workers. And then they asked me if I know about women who are working in underground mines. And at that time, I didn't know that there were women working in underground mines. But from then onwards, I thought, well, this is something I'd like to focus on in my research for the following year. I was doing my honors then. And so for my master's, I decided I would focus on these women that I had heard about. It was that time, yeah. That's really interesting. And I guess a lot of the time when we speak about 
gender gap and gender issues, the first first port of call people lean to is to ask about women, as if women are the only people with a gender. <laughs> yeah. And I'm very curious, yeah. very curious in your work, were the, the dynamics and the interaction amongst not just men and women, but also gender non-conforming people a part of your research? Yes and no. Yes, in the sense that I did meet a few, but very few people. So knowing the sense that it's not the major focus of the work when I am with the women, I'm very specific. I mean, focus is women, but also it's the mind. It's the passion of masculinity. Not a lot of people talk about anything else about being gender non-conforming. So even the few that I mentioned earlier, it was in private conversation, not during the research and not in focus group discussions. It was not always publicly known. Though for one person, it was publicly known. So in terms of the focus, my focus is on women, but I did come across the other people, even though they don't talk about uh, being gender non-conforming. And I think it's such an important area that we often we often relegate uh, in our research and also just in our conversations around gender. So I want I was very curious if if it was a part of your research. And then in terms of your interests and your experiences working within higher education, what do you find are the, the biggest disparities amongst men, women, and perhaps even gender non-conforming persons within higher education? Do we experience higher education differently? I'd say yes. I mean, it's a very important gender is not. Like you say, men are gendered, also women are gendered. But for women, their experiences because of being women are from the people I've talked to, from their own experiences. Their experiences in higher education are very much mediated by being women. So I was talking to colleagues, for instance, who have decided to have kids, how that you know, has such a bad and negative effect in how, like, in, in them moving up the academic ladder. But it's not the only thing. When you're raising kids, when you're a mom, a lot of times for women in academia, but for women in general, I think also, is that the primary caregivers, it's often the case that when something happens with the kids, instead of primary caregivers, they're the ones who take time off work. So in a way, that has had, but also I think in academia, also got its own ways of understanding who's a scholar, who's a bright scholar, who's a brilliant scholar, uh, and a lot of those things don't take into consideration some of the demands that are put on women by society, by families, and so forth. So, for instance, a bright and brilliant scholar is only someone who is um, doing their research, someone who prioritizes their research into mm. everything else. Uh, a brilliant scholar, someone who is able to make everything else take a backseat, but for a lot of women, that's not the case. And so when you're talking about big researchers, the amazing researchers in academia, you'll find in my experiences and in that women, because they're not able to do things the way men do things, people hadn't considered them the best, even though they are the best, because of the ways in which we conceptualize what's brilliant, what's good, what's great academic academia or they are then uh, sort of in the back foot because of that. Uh, not that they are not brilliant, I want to emphasize that. So it's all these stereotypes that are circulating in academia that put women in that back foot. That's really um, an interesting point that you raise here, that our even non-gendered concepts of who is brilliant and who is working hard doesn't often take into account what you've raised now, that the home work-life balance is often 
disproportionately placed on women who are seen to be high functioning at home and also have to be high functioning in the workplace. And surprisingly, those kinds of questions are never put on on male scholars that, you know, who is doing the the caregiving at the moment while you are at a conference. And I think it's a really important um, measure that we we often don't speak about, that this home work-life balance is often not equitable. But I think it's not just even home work-life balance. I mean, even at work for women, uh, the amount of work they're always expected to do, and it's not work that people see, right? The fact that, for instance, just a couple of weeks ago, my colleagues and I were talking about the work that we're doing as women in the department, in our own department, with students who will just see women and they'll want to part their programs, right? Even within the department, people are still expected, opposed that kind of care work to the departmental student. But no one knows it when you are spending two hours with a student a week because the student is struggling emotionally. It's not recognized in any way. Yet you are making and you are contributing significantly to a healthy department, not just in terms of staff members, but also in terms of students. So I don't think that care work is only something that women are doing at home, even within their department. And it's not just something that they're doing with the students. Sometimes even with male colleagues, when they have problems, they come to female colleagues in most cases Mm. because of that expectation that you're a woman and you know better about certain things like emotional stuff. And so... You end up spending a lot of time on these things that, again, are not registered, yet are so important when you're thinking about a healthy work environment, healthy students who are able to be productive. But then, again, we often talk about the home space as if it's made up of one place the home, the household. But we know that a lot of women, that that's not the only place where they do a lot of the extra work, but also like just community in general. When I think about my own mother, for instance, the amount of work she does in terms of funerals and so forth. So these are things, these are expectations that are placed on women. In the academy, it's the same way because, I mean, we're not just women who are not part of communities. We're women who are part of communities that have expectations on us as women and sometimes it's expectations things you want to do but also when you don't do those things in terms of this disproportionate kind of I mean when you don't do those things you are again labeled you're, you're a bad woman and it's not just something that happens in society but even in the academy you you'll hear about labels that people have women who have done it differently have or women who have done it like men have. So it's, you also get this social sanctioning when you don't conform to those accepted gender roles uh, as an academic. And I mean, isn't like just having children. Women are judged for having children if they're academic and they're penalized. So you're not only judged, but you're also penalized for that. And how the system also just does not want to work with women who've had kids, right? That at universities, there are no breastfeeding rooms for moms. If you're a researcher, the university has no source of funding whatsoever for mothers who are breastfeeding to take their kids with them when they're doing research. Yet it's important. And so women often have to decide, am I going to take my kid and use my own money? But we know that they're paid less than men. If they're taking kids with them uh, to do research, that's extra cost that's falling on the women. And if they're already being paid less than men in most institutions, what does that mean then? So it's a whole chain, I think, these inequalities between 
men and women and gender non-conforming people. And for gender non-conforming people, I think from what I've seen and what I've uh, I've noted at my own institution is that people often say that their work is not real research. It's about being gender non-conforming. So you could be doing research on being gender non-conforming and people just think this is this is this this is just decorative. It's not real scholarship. Uh, so you know, it's it's all it's different things for different people at different times of their lives. Mm. Uh, but I think in all of those, men are always at the top, obviously, and white men are always at the top, top, top. Sure. I mean, the, these burdens of, of gender, which are inequitably held, are, are really important that we speak about that. I'm, I'm really glad that you've raised the aspect of we, we aren't just scholars who exist in, in these silos within universities and then we cease to be, you know, these thinking bodies. We are both embodied and also thinking. And all of these stereotypes and the invisible labor, the, the care work that you mentioned, often goes unmentioned or unrecognized. And how do you think we can work better within our institutions to make this invisible labor more visible and more recognized? I think, I mean, I think one, we need to recognize that we also not teaching robots. We're teaching students who have mental health issues. We're teaching students who are coming from families that are struggling with ABCD. And so recognizing that we're not teaching robots that are not affected by things that are happening around them. We're teaching kids who, in some cases, in my case at BCT, who have to move between Kayalicha, where there are no resources, to Rondebosch, where there's an abundance of resources. What does that do to a student on a day-to-day basis? You leave home, there's no water, you get to Rondebosch, everyone's just wasting water, right? How does that affect you mentally? So I think first we Recognizing that we're not teaching robots, we're teaching people who have all sorts of needs, and universities have to make provisions for those needs. So it's not that universities have to make provisions by making the work that we do visible, but also in the sense that we need to have centers at our universities that will deal with these things. Because if we're saying, well, we're going to make it feasible, lecturers, female lecturers are going to continue doing it. It's not really. That's not really going to solve the pro- the, the 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 problem. In my view, it means that we're going to take on extra load, right? You're supposed to do research. You're supposed to do teaching, and now you're supposed to do this work that has now been made visible. But I think that it needs to hire people who are skilled in those kind of things, who are trained, properly trained, and not just three psychologists for a university. That's the God, 27,000 students, however many students we have in our case at GPT. It can't be, because this is, a, I mean, almost every fifth kid, student I knew, has a, a mental health issue. The university has to make provisions. It can't fall on female staff members. Uh, so I think that's one of the ways in which we can make it feasible, because when we see students using those services, that sort of makes it visible, the need. But also when the university actually provides the services and students are not struggling to find people to talk to, to lessen the load on those who happen to be carrying it now because of the, because they're female. I think there's much more to it than what I'm saying now. I think you're raising such an important issue, because in the same way in which the burden of transformation and anti-racism often falls on black members of staff. It, it doesn't solve the problem to say that female members of staff now ought to 
simply be given, you know, a, an award or simply recognition. But you raise the very important point that there needs to be a much greater political will to make these material resources available instead of, of expecting women to continue to do this kind of work. But I'm curious also about yeah. men. What is men's what do you see men's role as being? Because surely they're not just simply bystanders. I mean I think also if for instance in my department I am having to see ten students. I think men the way in which they interact with students has to change. If students feel like they can come talk me because I'm a woman and because it's also because maybe I'm doing my teaching differently. In my teaching I recognize that, oh, they are human. I think it's part of, men often need to rethink how they do teaching, rethink how they interact with students. If we are the ones who are then going to be carrying this load, right? Hmm. Uh, but that goes back to how men are obviously socialized but also the expectations that are not necessarily written down about how we do work in the academy so that men also take on some of because it's a responsibility so that they take on some of the responsibilities that fall on just female staff members so it's also got to do with that i think and i mean as as we in south africa are grappling with the transformation of our institutional cultures. It's important for us to also consider the way, the role that gender plays in shaping institutional cultures. We, we're not only transforming the legacies of colonialism and apartheid, but we're also dealing with gender disparities, very homophobic spaces in a lot of times. And I'm curious in your experience and in your work, how how can institutions become more responsive to the urgent need for institutional culture to not only be addressing the legacies of racism, but also gender issues and, and issues of homophobia and sexism? For me, when you're talking about addressing legacies of colonialism, the way in which we understand gender uh, is also part of the legacy of colonialism. Of Yeah. So it's not something that I don't... I, I see it as something that is that has to be addressed and with the same seriousness as racism. Uh, because even during colonialism, women were at the back foot. So how do institutions address these things? Again, I mean, I think... I'll, I'll just use a bit of examples from my research in the mining industry. That having quotas alone does not change things because some of these institutions that they'll say is that, oh, but we have 20% women in our management. But it's not about the numbers alone. The quotas alone don't necessarily transform institutions. If you want to transform institutions, you need to target the institutions, the heartbeat of the institutions. If you want to change institutional culture, the focus should not just be on quotas, but it should be on institutions culture. You can't transform a culture by looking at numbers only. I think these two things need to be considered together. When you focus on numbers and then you make it seem like it becomes a very tokenistic approach that, oh, it's just these numbers. We have these people now, so why are people still complaining? Whereas actually we know that the problem is not just with the numbers. The problem is much more deeper. It's more systematic. And so you need to change the way in which the system works. You need to go to the engine of the institution and undo the engine and rethink how you put it back together again. So in the case of UCT, it means rethinking, like I was saying earlier, like in terms of the institutional culture, how it favors some bodies and not other bodies, right? 
how it marginalizes some people over other people, who, whether it's women or it's gender non-conforming people. But I mean, at UCT, what some of what the students have been doing, the trans collective students, as part of changing the institutional culture in a small but a very important way, going around the bathrooms, removing bathroom signs, right, so that people who are gender non-conforming, trans people are able to use institutional bathrooms instead of all going to a specific part of campus mm. where there's only two bathrooms for gender non-conforming people. So I think it's part of, of the culture, but also it's pinpointing the specificities that constitute that culture and seeking to change those, right? For instance, talk about meetings. When are meetings at the university, like with the university management house? How, in what ways does that inconvenience women who have to do all these multiple tasks? So it's not just uh, the numbers, it's all these other little things that make up that big institutional culture that is resisting change. And, it, and, it's, a huge, and it's a huge burden, which, um, as you say, students have been at the forefront in, in kind of making visible what many women, gender non-conforming uh, staff members have been talking about for many years. And I think the last two years of student protests have really brought to the fore the necessity of thinking through the issues of transformation and decolonization. I would just like to go back to this question about considering how gender forms part and parcel of our conversations of decolonization, because as you mentioned, gender too has been constructed in particular way. And Firstly, I'd like to ask you, what are some of those ways in which you see the colonial manifestations of uh, of gender playing out in our institutions? And then taking it back to ask about intersectionality and, and asking how can we address some of these colonial legacies, particularly on gender, in an intersectional way, recognizing that we are gendered, we are raised, we are classed. It always strikes me that a lot of our administrators, for instance, women, and I know this is a very... It might seem like a small example. So one, a lot of our administrators are women, they're not men. But if you go to like IT, the finance, you find that a lot of the guys, so there's the administrators and then there's the people are just above the administrators. And when you get there, it's mainly men. Uh, and the administrators, again, are the ones who give a lot of support to students. So when you asked me earlier, what are some of the legacies? I think for me, that also is part of these legacies that certain people, and it's not just women, but it's women of specific colors who are administrators. And in the case of Cape Town, that's also linked to the history of the province. It's women of a specific color coming from specific backgrounds who are administrators. And right above them, it's men from specific so it's partly undoing that. How come we hardly have any male administrators? How come when we think about certain occupations, we automatically think of certain bodies and certain races when we think about those occupations? How about we rethink that and undo that as a way of addressing some of those? So it goes also then to the top management. Why is it that when we're thinking about someone who will fill in the finance post. A lot of times people think about certain people in certain institutions. Mm. By virtue of where those institutions are located, 
So I think it would be partly that. And then the second part of your question was around intersectionality. I don't think the way in which people experience institutions, I mean, my experiences where I'm based are not just mediated by my blackness, but Mm. my race, how I identify otherwise, they've all influenced the ways in which I have interacted with the institution, the way the institution or certain groups within the institution have received or not received me. So to think or to address only one aspect of how people navigate spaces, it seems very insufficient, even though at times it seems like that's what people are pushing. But I think for those who are really on the margin, it's always the case that one agenda is pushed. So gender or race or whatever the case may be or you know, you'll find that for a, a gender non-conforming disabled person, because they are, they they have certain disabilities, and the the push is only focusing on race. The fact that they have these disabilities is not addressed, right? And so, in a way, why you're supposed to address the race ill, you are just perpetuating the disability part, right? Mm-hmm. The ways in which the institution continues to marginalize them uh, because of their body. And so I think there's nothing that can be addressed for me anyway by looking at on this one kind of thing. So by looking just at race, I think we have to be mindful of the intersections between all of these things. But not just the intersections, but the margins within those intersections. In in highlighting one issue, we can then, you know, exacerbate the the exclusion on another on another level. And I'm curious what what do you make of the call for um having spaces that are spaces that deal specifically with particular groups. So while mindful of the fact that we we need to be intersectional in our practice, there might be a call for having a black woman space or maybe a trans-friendly space that allows people who identify with a particular marginalized identification to be able to meet, organize, heal without necessarily having to do the educating of other groups who might feel that this is a, a distraction from the issue that they want to address. I'm thinking specifically specifically here of some of the experiences within Fees Must Fall, Roads Must Fall and various other movements that have been around the country that we've seen groups saying actually to claim a space that is safe for us, that is safe and where we can breathe without having to continuously have to insert or assert ourselves is the best option. How do you see these, for me, what might appear as contradictory impulses? One for intersectionality, which I think sometimes suggests that we we work in collaboration with others who might not recognize us, and then also the call for for exclusive spaces for those who feel they are in the margins. I don't necessarily think these two, it's either or, right? Mm. I think there are, we have to have spaces where we are all working, not all actually, where those who are on the margins at specific intersections work together. But like I said earlier, I think for me, I see it as working in those margins. And when working in those margins or recognizing the margins, I think spaces that are safe for certain people who are at certain margins make sense. It does not mean that when you are recognizing intersections, you only, it's recognizing the margins of the intersections, not just the intersections for their own sake, but the margins. So what I mean by that is 
um, black working class women, even in those safe spaces, might not feel safe when it's all these upper class black women. So blackness alone and being female alone is not going to make you feel safe. It's important that you recognize the margin that she also uh, exists on in terms of class, right? So working class being one of the being that margin for her. And so I think to have spaces that will recognize that is important. But I also don't think that all these things can only be addressed in such spaces. So I think it's also important to consider other forms of spaces because your margins aren't always the same. So in some cases, I may be at the top of that kind of, like, so when it comes to race, class, I may not be in the, on the working class margin or maybe middle or maybe upper in some instances but in others maybe when it comes to sexuality i'm at the bottom and so i may be with working class women who don't identify the same way in terms of sexuality that i do and so it's important that even though when it comes to middle class stuff i may be at the top but when it comes to the different uh, times at which at which people's identities intersect uh and so having multiple versions of spaces, is, I think it's important. But what's also important is the people defining what kind of spaces they want, not those spaces being imposed on them by people who think that, oh, this is important in, uh, in all our spaces. So, uh, for instance, spaces that only say race is important because, well, for black men, they can't relate to A, B, C, D. Obviously, that's not a space that's safe for others are on the margins in other ways, creating other kinds of spaces. I think multiple spaces or multiple worlds uh, that can coexist. Certainly, it brings back to what you mentioned earlier about recognizing the multiplicity of our students who come as three-dimensional people. Similarly, those of us who work in, in institutions need to also recognize that we come in all shapes and sizes and different bodies and different life experiences. And so I think it's quite central that you mentioned the point that these identifications shift as we move. So in one instance, my sexuality may be a, a marginal identification. And in another space, my class identity affords me particular kinds of privileges that allows me to move yeah. and take space or take up space where others feel excluded. And I think that's so central and something that we really are able to do in practice within universities, that as we traffic in, in complexity, seldom in our practice, do we then bring this complexity yeah. to the fore. So thank you for raising that. And I just wanted to ask about in two areas then, how in your experience or how have you seen people actualize this, whether it's in the classroom space or in their research space, how they actually pay attention to these important complexities and shifting shifting spheres of identification. I think even in our classrooms, we are mindful of certain people who, by virtue of their privileges, tend to take up space, whether it's in class discussions or especially in class discussions or group discussions within the class, depending on how you do classes. And I think uh, one of the ways in which we can, I mean, what I often do to my students, if a student wants to talk over time, I'll be like, okay, just think about why, tell me why I should give you a chance to talk again when there are people here who haven't talked. So just to make the student reflect on, and, and in most cases, a cl one of my classes where people actually do a lot of talking, is on race, class, gender. So right at the beginning, uh, encouraging students to be mindful of their own positionality 
and to constantly reflect on that. And when you remind them, and when their classmates remind them, they often say, oh, yeah, 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 okay, you can give it to somebody else. But I think there's got to be that kind of awareness also in you as a lecturer, let's say when you're teaching, that you can't only give airtime to certain people just because they want to talk. Mm. There's a reason they want to talk and they're confident enough to talk. But I think part of what we're supposed to do is to cultivate that kind of confidence uh, with other students who may not necessarily seem keen to talk all the time, but to create a classroom environment where people who have been on the margins can feel like, actually, in this class, my views matter because she always asks about what we think in this role, me and my friends, and me and my friends think about, but also to encourage students to to bring their own experiences to class and not just to, to come to class and think that I'm the one who's teaching in class. If I'm teaching about class, students navigate the world as classed human beings, as gendered human beings. So to bring those experiences to class and for me to actually see the value of that and and encourage it. It's not as if that they aren't experiences which are already privileged. I'm, I'm always very curious that when, especially as a young black academic, when you when you speak of lived experiences in class, it's like, ah, why are we always talking about these experiences? But honestly, there is a particular kind of assumed experience that takes center stage. And if yeah. you don't, if you yeah. don't make it explicit, it can just go unsaid that, you know, the norm is a white middle-class male perspective. That's really instructive. And then earlier you raised in terms of uh, research that one of the biggest challenges is that academics uh, who have children, who are mothers specifically, are often made to carry that burden uh, financially and there aren't enough resources. But how else do you see research also paying attention to to gender issues and gender inequality? It's also very tricky because, again, I think in terms of how we do research, each institution is very different. But, I mean, I've been surprised at uh, when hearing some colleagues where I'm based currently who say that when they go and research, they can't take their kids unless they are willing to pay for that. Mm. For me, it seems like it's so obvious that at a, between a certain age and a certain age, the university needs to carry that load. I mean, we write articles, we publish articles from the research that we do, and universities get money. The less they can do, the little they can do is to support women who have to do this research with a small kid and sometimes a nanny uh, instead of that uh, being carried by, by women alone. But it's not just the university, but it's also male colleagues. Male colleagues who've got kids also in some instances. Wives are taken care of in other companies, but at the university they're not willing to make those contributions towards funds such as funds that would assist female staff members when they have to do research. But then the other ones are much more practical, and I think they're not individual-based, but I think people who've had such experiences of needing to travel with kids while doing research who would probably know a lot more about them than I do. I mean, it's not necessarily the scope of our show, but I think you raise such an interesting aspect in in, in the in terms of mobility and research. So as who do ethnography rather, who need to literally physically move about in order to conduct research, there are particular kinds of constraints that uh, 
female researchers experience, not only in terms of childcare, but also questions of safety, where maybe male colleagues don't necessarily have to think, worry about that. You know, am I going to be safe if I stay at this particular backpackers or will yeah. I need to stay elsewhere? And and also, at least for, for myself in the social sciences, being mobile is such a key aspect of being able to conduct research. It's, it's not necessarily that, you know, you're going to be in a lab or you're going to be in the archives um, within your institutions, but that you need to be able to move and be flexible enough. And I think that's something that I hadn't necessarily considered until you, you raised it in terms of childcare, how mobility is such a central instance of experiencing gender disparities mm. within the research space. So I'm just thinking about, I mean, the safety aspect. So sad how male colleagues are just so not aware of how unsafe we are when we are doing field work, how actually doing field work in some instances you are bargaining with so much with your life. I mean, when we're talking about race, it's not just something that affects certain people, academics when they are doing research and younger academics, younger academics who don't have the social capital, the cultural capital that's so important and who often have to bargain with people just to have interviews, just to meet up with people, just to have access. And how a lot of times we're so exposed to all these things and male colleagues know nothing about them. And in some cases, it's the senior people within the academy who expose us to these things. But talking about them is something that we're not encouraged or it's a hush-hush. But also, I mean, when you're talking about the dangers, it's not just dangers out there, it's dangers in here. A lot of these things don't just happen when we're out in the field. We, in fact, we learn to navigate them while we're at our university. When we're out in the field, it's a matter of doing what you've always been doing at the university. Get access, get this to get that. Bargaining with patriarchy, bargaining with all these things that are so scary at times when you think about and, and often you don't feel you've got, as you mentioned, the social capital to be able to kind of call out when you see my male colleague is getting preferential treatment or I'm being harassed by a student which also sometimes happens to female colleagues and so it's it's I mean it's, it's such a fraught terrain actually when you when you start digging underneath when we're saying there's a gender gap within higher education we're not simply speaking of quota we're not just simply saying we want to see more female VCs the, the very culture of these institutions need to be radically transformed and rethought and not just simply yeah. fixed with quotas or numbers. Well, you have definitely given us a lot to think about, um, Dr. Benia, and thank you so much for your time. Thank you very much to you. My name is Khaupalele Palaizile and I studied um, BA, Bachelor of Arts in uh, Politics and Philosophy. In terms of the gender gap in varsity, I don't remember experiencing or feeling it in class except for um, being lectured um, by professors who were all men um, and having less professors who were women. And um, as far as I can remember, the women, the women I experienced were in a a higher position where only tutors and that's not even a higher position so that made me wonder how much of a success it can be in university as a woman 
Um, the other place, areas where I experienced um, the gender gap in varsity was when I joined organizations um, on campus and started being part of certain organizations and um, having, you know, differences with men and feeling undermined, whether it was church organizations or political organizations. Um, that's where the gender gap, I really felt it hard with personal relationships and seeing that um, even in organizations, men still lead at university in many areas. I mean, even going back to professors, so far our VC, even when I was at university was a man and even still now a man was appointed. So those are the many ways I experienced it and saw it and yeah. The Academic Citizen is a podcast sponsored by ASAU, the Academic Staff Association of Wits University. ASAU is the union representing the interests of academic staff at Wits. For more information, visit www.asau.org.za. The Academic Citizen aims to be a platform for a diversity of views and opinions. We welcome your feedback, comments, and suggestions for future guests and shows. Email us at theacademiccitizen at gmail.com or leave a comment at www.theacademiccitizen.org Research, scheduling, editing and production was done by me, Simba Rashe Wondem. Jager Melko created our jingles. <laughs>